Our Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 28, verses 15 through 21, and verses 29 and 30, and can be found on page 68 in the Bibles we provide and on page 38 of the Children's Bibles. You shall make a breastpiece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stones. A row of sardius, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row, and the second row an emerald, a sapphire, and a diamond, and the third row a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst, and the fourth row a beryl, an onyx, and a jasper. They shall be set in gold filigree. There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus, Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. This is the word of the Lord. And our New Testament reading is from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 and can be found on page 1023 in the Bibles we provide and on page 212 of the Children's Bibles. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is the word of the Lord. Our sermon text for this morning comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We found on page 980 in the Bibles we provide and 288 um, in the children's Bibles. Real quick, as you might notice, um, some of you may have expected Dr. Luther Whitlock to be here this morning. He is not, as you can tell. So sorry that you're going to have to put up with me this morning, but we're going to be starting a new series on the um, book of Philippians that's going to lead us into Advent. So we figured we'd just jump right into that. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. If you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you 
with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and with all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of God. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would speak in it and through it to our hearts by your Holy Spirit and open our ears and our hearts and our minds to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. We in our society today have lost the idea of written communication. Have we not? Between emails and between texts and between social media, it is a rare thing when you get a handwritten note from someone. And it's so valuable and so important because sometimes you'll hear something from someone and it's great when someone wants to give you some encouragement. But if you're anything like me, I forget. Someone said something really nice to me yesterday and then someone else said something not nice to me and I'm gonna remember that. I'll remember that every time. But the fact is this idea that we have this ability to kind of write to each other. And I don't know about you, but for me, I keep handwritten notes. I would bet I'm not the only person that if someone takes the time to write a word of encouragement to me, I keep them. And I've got a folder in my desk that just labeled encouragement. I know, very original, I'm just telling you. And when I have a hard day, when it's just difficult and things just don't seem to be going well, I will pull that out. And it is a reminder to my heart. And it is used by the Lord. I know these are humans who wrote this and I'm not saying they were divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, but I will say that God was at work through them to my heart. That each and every word, each and every note means something deeply to me and it ministers to my soul. And that ministry of the written word was one of Paul's most enduring legacies. He realized and saw how important it was to encourage these churches the Lord allowed him to begin. So more than half of our New Testament is this record of his letters, these personal letters he wrote to these churches and how he's writing to them that it also speaks to our hearts because we too, like them, are God's people. And especially when we look at the the book of Philippians, just to remember a little bit about Philippi, it's Acts 16. We actually studied that not too long ago. Quick reminder of what happened. God calls Paul to Macedonia, which is to Europe. He goes to this church. He finds there's no synagogue. He goes down to the waterfront. While there, he finds this lady named Lydia who loved God, but didn't really know the gospel, shares the gospel, she comes saved. Then he continues to go down to this waterfront where people would pray. He runs into this slave girl who had the spirit of divination, you'll remember. And she used to go around saying, these are servants of the most high God. And finally, Paul, which again, I'm so thankful the Bible tells us, just kind of got fed up. Paul wasn't perfect. And Paul casts out the demons. Because of that, her owners get really angry, beat him and have him arrested and thrown in jail. While he's in jail, he's singing praises, he's praying, God miraculously frees them and then brings the word of salvation to the jailer and to his entire family. But then the persecution is still so much that Paul has to leave. That's the the legacy of the church of Philippi. And yet when we read this letter, it is one of his most personal letters. He loves this church deeply and this church brings him joy. The word joy is in this letter 16 times. He is writing to these people that he loves deeply. 
And what his desire is to encourage them and to help them towards Christian maturity. That's the whole point of this letter. And we'll see it as we study it along the way. He's saying to these people he loves, I want you to know what it takes to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ. I want you to know what it looks like to truly follow him. And as we look at that today, as we look at that theme running through our minds in the first 11 verses, the theme is truly love. We see so clearly this love. The first thing we're gonna see, we're gonna see three things. The first thing we're gonna see is Paul expressing his love for these people. The second thing we're gonna see is Paul reminding them of God's love for them. And the third thing is encouraging them that the response to that love should be them loving others, should their love as well. So the first thing is that Paul has this moment where he wants to express his love for them. And we see that in the word pictures that he uses. First thing he says to them is, you know what? You are saints and I am a servant. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. And this word is actually doulos, which most of you know what that means, but it's more slave. Like servant is almost not strong enough to understand. A servant at this time could move in and out and go as they please. It was more like an employee that worked for someone because they were working off a debt. A slave was someone who was owned by somebody else. So what Paul's saying is, I'm owned by Christ. I am his possession. That's how I see myself. And I see you as the saints. I see you as the ones who are set apart. Now, for those of us that have any kind of Catholic background, and the saints is a kind of an interesting word. And what he's saying here is it's just people who are set apart. You and I, if you are in Christ, you are a saint. Doesn't mean you get a holiday. Doesn't mean anything else. It just means, you know, you are a saint. So he wants to clearly show that he's a servant and they're saints. And this is not, Paul would have the right to expect more. He could insert his own influence. He's the one that started the church. He's the one that proclaimed the gospel. He could be there, well, I am, you know, the leader. I am in charge. I am the one you need. He's like, I'm your servant because I'm a slave of Christ. This beautiful picture that he has for them. He sees his role is to serve and the role of leader should always be to serve and to help. And he follows that up, that picture with, you know, I have great joy for you. I'm thankful for you. And then he says that you are partners and partakers. You're partners in the gospel and partakers in God's grace. What he's basically saying is we're equal. I'm not gonna exert influence. I'm not saying that I'm so high and you're so down here because guess what? You also are partakers in his grace, which means I need his grace and you need his grace. We're all sinners. There is no one who's better. I'm here to help and to serve you. And the gospel's not just for me to do. It's not just, well, Paul, you know, I'm Paul, so I'm gonna do all the ministry. I'm gonna share the gospel and you guys just kind of do whatever you do back at Philippi. He's saying, we're partners in this. The gospel will go forth because we're working together for the gospel. And you are a partner and you are a partaker because you are about the defense of the gospel. You are about the proclamation of the gospel, that you are defending it when people are trying to go against it. When people try to speak against it, you have the ability to speak truth. And you confirm the gospel. You show that it's true by the way that you live. And then he goes, I mean, 
I'm not a real, I like romantic comedy movies. I'm just going to be honest. I like love songs. That stuff that's, I'm weird like that, okay? But this felt a little cheesy to me. This felt a little much for Paul. When he starts saying things like, I have you in my heart. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. It felt like I was a little uncomfortable. I was like, wow, that's, that's a little over the top. But that is the emotion welling up within him towards them. He didn't want them for a second to not think, this is how I feel about you. There's this deep, intimate connection and love and care for you. I have you in my heart. I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. And that connects us to our Old Testament passage. Sometimes I wonder if you think that those of us that picked like the passages of scripture think we've lost our mind. Because I don't know how many of y'all make the connections between like the Old Testament, New Testament passage and what we're preaching on. I know some of you don't because people are like, why don't you guys ever tell us? Did you just pick a verse at random? Did you just kind of like say, let's find the hardest verse for someone to read like this morning, come up with a bunch of things no one's ever heard of before. Is that, is that the goal? No, funny, but no. The goal was this picture of the ephod that God had the priest go pray for the people on behalf of God and offer sacrifices before God on behalf of the people. And he would wear this ephod, this kind of cloak. And as a part of what they made, it had 12 stones, the 12 stones for the tribes of Israel over his heart. So when he would go before God, he's supposed to always remember to have God's people on his heart that he is supposed to be caring for them, loving for them. Because can you imagine a priest who's ticked off at his people going before God? Well, I mean, they're not really, I mean, I'm just kind of fed up with them. I don't like the way they're talking. I don't like what they're doing to me. They're not being very kind. You, that is not the person you want to represent you before God. You want someone who deeply loves the people. So that picture of those stones over his chest as he puts that on and he feels the weight of those stones over his heart. He would understand and he would say, as Paul would say, I have you on my heart to pray for you, to love you, to care for you. And what I love is that Paul doesn't just put up with God's people. I confess sometimes I just put up with God's people. I just tolerate them. He says, I yearn for you with the affection that Christ has. His love for you is the kind of love that I have for you. And that's not something I can do on my own. It's only something the Holy Spirit gives us. He makes so clear his love for them. But the second thing he does is he wants to make sure that they see that God's love is for them. Verse six, he says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That there is a work that's been done. This work of salvation has been done for you. God has begun it, so God will complete it. I think it's easy for us to forget. I think we sometimes get in our mindset, somehow we did something to start the salvation process. Like we kind of figured something out. We read something or we went to church and heard a sermon or we like sang a song or heard a song. I've got really good and bad news for you. The bad news is that wasn't you. The good news is that wasn't you. God was at work. God is the one who was constantly pursuing your heart in different ways to get your attention. He's the one that's revealed your need. He's the one that's revealed truth. He's the one that's opened your eyes. 
He's the one that started the ball rolling. Wherever you are with Christ this morning, that was started by God. And so often we forget that that's the beginning and he will carry it to the end. Some of us think that God's work was done when we're saved. His job was the work of justification. He died on the cross for our sins. He reveals himself to us. Once we're saved, he's like, all right, good luck. See you guys later. I've got some other things to do. I've got more people to save. We might not say it out loud, but we think that. We think we're the ones who have to go through the sanctification by ourselves. It's all on us. It's all on our effort, all on our abilities. And even later in this book, chapter two, he says that Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We've heard that verse and we stop right there. And we think, well, I've got to work out my salvation. I've got to figure it out. I've got to, I've got to be afraid of God and figure out how to, Right after that, it says, because it is God who works in you. That even our work of sanctification is God's work in us. Sure, we're supposed to be obedient. Absolutely, we're supposed to bring glory to him. We should listen. We should obey. All that is who we're called to be. But even that is a work of God's Holy Spirit in you and in me. Even that is his work. And most of us are afraid because we know ourselves, don't we? We start projects that we never finish. Maybe that's not you, but that's me. I'll start something and have the best intentions, be super excited about it, and then it gets hard. And then it gets boring. Or then I get distracted by something else. And my house has at times been littered with unfinished projects. God never starts something he can't finish. God is not about unfinished business. And what he has begun, he will complete in you and in me all the way until Christ Jesus comes back. That's the end. That's the goal. The end is not once you get married or once you have kids or once you get a job or once you retire or his finish line is when Christ comes back and he will consistently and constantly be at work in you. And at times we just don't trust it. We think he's fed up. We think we've done too much. We think we've outsinned his grace. We think he's just gonna be done with us because it's too much. It reminds me um, of a movie and it's, you know, when you pick movies, it's just so interesting how you pick different movies. So just know that on the front end. It's Captain America, the Winter Soldier. And you're all thinking, what in the world is this guy doing? It's a great movie if you've never seen it. And it's actually not one of the crazy action movies that's just, it's got a good story. For those of you that should probably know, Captain America, a guy named Steve Rogers, who is a superhero. I feel silly even starting this now. Okay, keep going. Just go with it. Go with it. It's good, I promise. Captain America... He was this puny little kid. He gets like this super serum, becomes this big, tough soldier. He's leading things against the Nazis and against um, Hydra, which is the bad guy. And one of these missions, he has his best friend goes with him. His name is Bucky Barnes. And on this mission, as they're going to do this thing to capture this guy, Bucky ends up dying. And you find Steve wrecked with his guilt and, and just feels terrible. He doesn't know what to do. And he's just not quite the same. Fast forward to the second movie, now that I've ruined one movie for you. So in the second movie, he finds this bad guy called the Winter Soldier 
And as he's fighting, he realizes it's Bucky. That Bucky was actually found by these Hydra scientists and he was transformed into this like, crazy assassin guy, but he doesn't remember anything. And so he has to fight him throughout the movie, but at every point he is trying to go and redeem him. He's trying to win the battle, but try to redeem Bucky as well. At the very end of the movie, as things are blowing up everywhere, let's ruin two movies while we're here, um, and they're winning, he's fighting against his best friend. This best friend who has now killed people, this best friend who has been against him, who has been his enemy for this entire movie. And he looks at him and he drops his shield, which is a big deal for Captain America. And he says, I'm not gonna fight you anymore. He's like, I'm not gonna fight you because you're my friend. And so Bucky, the Winter Soldier, starts just to beat on him. I mean, just pulls him down. He says, fight back, fight me. He's like, I won't fight you. He says, then I'm gonna kill you. And he says, well, then get on with it then. He says, cause I'm with you to the end of the line. Whatever happens, I'm with you to the end of the line. And there's this moment of flashback that when Steve was a young guy and everything had gone wrong and his parents had died and he's by himself, Bucky's his only friend. And when he says, I know you're all by yourself, but don't forget that I'm with you to the end of the line. And that picture that he's with us to the end of the line. We know cognitively that God's never gonna leave us. He's never gonna forsake us. He loves he will never leave you even when everyone else has. He will never give up on you when everyone else has. No matter what you think you've done to disqualify you from his grace, guess what? You haven't. He's with you to the end of the line. What he began, he will complete. He will make you into the creation you're supposed to be. And how often do you and I try to complete God's work for him? And how often do we forget to trust that what he's doing? Because we see ourselves, we know the the stuff that we do, the consistent struggles that we have. And what I'm not talking about, some of us have these sin patterns that we choose sin over God and it's this conscious effort for us. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what Paul called the thorn in his flesh. That there are these things in our lives that we can't escape, that we can't get over no matter how hard we try. And we think that disqualifies us from God's love. But what did Paul say? He said, this happens so that you will know that my grace is sufficient for you. We can't grow in who God wants us to be until we see our sin more and more. And we think the closer we get to Jesus, the less sin we'll see. And the exact opposite is true. The closer you get to his perfection and the closer you get to his light, the longer your shadow of sin is behind you. But that keeps us longing and wanting him more because he will not quit on us. The good work he has begun in you, he's gonna carry on to completion. So what's the response? It's the third thing. Our response should be love. He says, I pray for you. That is his response of loving them is to pray for them. And here's my prayer, that your love may abound more and more. This idea of maturity, we've talked about this whole letter is Christian maturity. The way that we show Christian maturity is love. 
And it's counterintuitive for most of us. We think, no, 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 maturity is knowledge. It's, you know what? The more I know, that's how I'm gonna be really mature when I really get it and I really understand. And so many of us, when I've said, you know, talk about sharing our faith, it's like, I can't share the gospel with someone. I don't know enough. Neither do I. Neither does anyone. We will never, if maturity is based on our knowledge, we'll never be mature enough. Or it's on like insight, it's on discernment. If I just make good enough decisions, if I figure out the world enough and how to make decisions and do things, then I'm mature enough. What he's saying here, and he uses those words. He says, you know what? Your your love may abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. But he's saying love is the entree and knowledge and discernment are the side dishes. Abound in love. He is not saying love is a mark of Christian maturity. He's saying love is the mark of Christian maturity. Do you wanna evaluate your life and say, am I really following the Lord? Am I really doing what he wants me to do? Evaluate your life on how you're loving. And the the word he uses for love, of all the different Greek words for love, it's agape. It is this self-sacrificial, caring more about someone else than yourself, highest form of Greek love. That's what he's talking about. Like you totally giving up yourself for the good of someone else. That's the kind of love that you need to have. And that love is important, but it's not just that it's essential. He'll write later in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says, you know what? If you understand all the tongues of angels, if you know every mystery and have all wisdom in the world, if you have faith that can move mountains, and if you are so self-sacrificial, you're willing to let yourself be burned for somebody else, and yet have not love, it is worth nothing. It does nothing, and you are nothing. The point is this self-sacrificial love. It is our call as God's people that we are to love. And that love may abound more and more. I hope that you hear that and go, wow, that's a lot. The picture I can give you is when I was a kid, like when I take baths, I used to love to have a big cup and stick it under the faucet and just watch the water keep running through. And it would overflow and then there was more water in it would more overflow and it would, I would not know if the water was going in or just going straight out. He's saying, I want your love to abound more and more. So I want your love to be overflowing into everything you do, everything you see, everything you say. And in the Greek, this phrase is actually yet more and more. There's this little word called a T that we don't even translate. And the picture is it should abound Continuously, that's the first more. Yet more, it should never stop. You should have abounding love all the time. And you should also have abounding love in increasing measure. So you could all the time be loving more and always loving in different ways more. That your love should abound more and more. And not this like cheesy, you know, sentimental love, but a love that is connected with knowledge and discernment. That is our witness to the world. It is what sets you and I apart for how we love others. And I love that he doesn't say who to love. He doesn't say let your love for God abound more and more or your love for each other abound more and more or your love for unbelievers abound more and more or your love for the cause or love for the gospel. 
He just says love. So he means all of it. Our love should abound. They will know that we are Christians by our love. That is what we reflect and show most. And out of that comes these last things. What we'll do when we're really, truly living a life of love, we can approve what is good. And the idea of this is knowing what's right and doing it. I think most of us have a good grasp on knowing what the right thing is to do. The hard part for all of us is actually doing it. It's the difference between assent and acceptance. I assent, I believe it, but then actually living it out and doing the thing God's called us to do. We can only do that when we love. And then also that we'd have lives that are pure and blameless. Now don't misinterpret what he's saying. It doesn't mean if you love that you're now gonna be perfect because you can't be. You're still tainted with a sin like everybody else. In Christ's eyes, we're perfect, but in the world, we're still gonna struggle. But this idea that we will be different and the word, the Greek word for pure is also called sincere. In Old Testament times, in ancient world, the most important thing that the most important commerce was pottery. Most people made it, that was bought and sold, it was important. Two kinds of pottery. There was really cheap pottery, which was always really thick and clunky, but like it was very useful. So you'll make it dark, it's thick, and then really expensive pottery, which was thin and light. The reason being it was so much harder, you had to work with it so much more to make it that way. So it was more expensive, more valuable, but also more fragile. Most of that, not most, but probably half of that would crack once you put it in the oven to bake it. At that point, it's useless. You can't redo it. You can't remake the clay at that point. You just throw it out. Dishonest pottery makers would take wax and they would fill in the cracks with the wax of the same color. And then they paint it or whatever else. And if I gave it to you, you would never be able to tell. But this word sincere in the Greek means tested by light. And the way you would test a, a pot was you would hold it up to the sunlight and you'd see the wax. You could see where the brokenness, you could see what was wrong with it. You could see where it wasn't pure pottery anymore. And the people who were reputable and honest with their pottery, they wrote this phrase, Sinna Sarah, without wax. Our lives are to be sincere. Our lives are to be pure. People should be able to hold us up to the light. Even though we're not perfect, they can see the depths of our love. They can see the ways that we care. And that's the last thing that comes from our love is this fruit of righteousness, that people should notice you and I following Christ and loving each other and loving other people and loving him that they should be able to see something different in us. So for us, as we think about that, what fruit do you and I show to an unbelieving world? What would people say about the way that we love? Love each other, love the Lord, love those who need it, love ourselves. Because that's the sign that we are given of how we follow Christ is the way we love. Um, when I left, I mean, I did student ministry for a long time. And when I left a church a long time ago, I wrote notes to every one of the students in the ministry as I left. That's not to say Andrew's some great guy. It's just something I did. And you never know. You write something down, you give it to a student. Most likely that ends up in the trash can. You never know anything else about it. So it just so happens about six years later, I'm in another church in another city. I get wind that one of those kids in the youth group who I really cared about and loved to pass away 
and they invited me to come to the funeral. And you show up at the funeral and you're just trying to be loving and supportive and helpful to the family. And their mom comes and just gives me this big hug. And she's like, do you know how much you meant to him? And the answer is, of course, no, I have no idea. She said, in his dorm room, on his bulletin board, there was a bunch of pictures and one note from you because he knew you loved him and you spoke truth into him because you reminded him who he was. And I want you to know that you had that impact. Guess what, y'all? God has given us a note of his love written with the blood of his son that we might know and understand what we're called to do, which is a call to be people who love well. Let us be people who pray. Let us be people who trust. Let us be people who love.